and that's how they got hacked. Somebody hacked them through a fish tank. And welcome to episode number 13, lucky 13 of Grumpy Old Ben's. I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chirac, where the temperatures are rising, but the IQs are going down. And from America's always sunny, except when it's not left coast, I'm Ryan Bemrose. It's always sunny on the left coast. We have a very special guest with us today for episode 13. Uh, maybe we're trying to get our maybe get the luck good, get the mojo good. We have Brendan Kidwell, aka Progo. If you are a visitor to the No Agenda Troll Room, y'all know Progo. He's here to add some insight on cryptography. Crypto, we'll be talking about today. How are you doing, Brendan? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for inviting me. How are things in New York? Are they still a little bit insane? Uh, politically, yeah, it's always insane. And, well, and in in New York, how's Nick doing? Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen him in a while, but his show is great. His show is great. We have to track him down in the sewer. We got to get Nick on the show too. That would be fun. What, what kind of uh, expertise does a rat bring? We'll have to find that one out, but we were talking, I just have to assume that anybody who lives in New York knows everybody else in New York. That's correct. Isn't it? Yes. We all know each other. Okay. Yeah. It's a small little Hamlet, just like what? 5 million people, something like that. Oh, more than that. 50. No, it's somewhere around like 8 million, I think. I don't know. If you count just the city. If you count the rats, <laughs> it's way, way, way so, up there. But we were today we're talking about cryptology. Yes, we are. Cryptology. And of course, you're going to have to be talking about cryptology or cryptography. Right. Uh, cryptography. A, a cryptozoology, I think. The, <laughs> the, the existence of unicorns and dragons. Isn't that what the show is about? Yeah, that's exactly what the audience is tuned in for. And you will be our expert on unicorns and dragons or okay, well, so 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 just just to be clear on that topic uh they don't exist okay next next topic <laughs> so then we're into cryptography something that we've been having to talk progo and i brendan and i in the troll room about crypto and why it is so such a very hard thing for people to understand why it has been such a very hard thing to implement in a lot of ways. And I think we have our thoughts on exactly why that is and uh, you know, maybe why things don't work exactly the way that they should. But encryption at a very low level is something cryptography. The word basically means secret writing. So right there, it's kind of easy to understand. I think as kids, we all had, you know, with friends, if you're passing notes in school, something stupid like you know maybe if it's an a you put a b you know very a very simple code that would have to be broken which goes back way back into the 50s remember we used to get the little decoder ring i've heard for like little orphan annie stuff like that only where you remember the 50s i wasn't there. i remember the Sorry. 50s because i didn't live in them but because i actually you know can read and consume some content from back then because it's better than today uh, is but the, then what, it, is the 50s a channel on youtube it could be I mean, there's everything on YouTube, but I don't really go there much. But at its very heart, that's cryptography. Being able to take a message, make it into something the average person can't read, and then the person that you want to read it is able to decipher and 
take the message that you put into there where nobody in the middle allegedly is supposed to be able to figure that out. And of course, and mathematically, that's about half of it, actually. The other half of cryptography is proving that things are authentic, either that the message is authentic or that you know that the person who sent it is the person they claim to be. And authentication is the other half of cryptography. And if you've been paying attention to the political coverage on the mainstream media, you know that authentic messages are hard to find. Well, that's because the deep fakes are coming in. But in this case, the confirming that somebody is who they say they are, this happens to everybody that uses the internet on a daily basis. When you go to a website, like your bank's website, hopefully, unless you have a really bad bank and I might, that when that little lock comes up or whatever symbol your browser uses to say, hey, this website is secure, there's actually a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And it all doesn't work. Well, it should, but there's problems, right? Yeah. And what problems are inherent to that particular system? Because this is using the same kind of cryptography where you've got a public key and a private key. And when you go to a website, you expect that when you see the lock for it to be the site you want. How do do you know if it's not and uh, what's going on behind the scenes? Let me explain the the problem with uh, TLS and SSL in your browser. Like the the basic problem. AKA the lock icon. Yeah. So you see that lock icon, you think you're good and everything's fine. And, and the browser is doing a lot of crazy shit in the background to, um, to try to make it as right as possible and, and freak out if things are wrong. But what you got is when they set up this public key infrastructure in, to, to authenticate the uh, public keys of vendors that you would talk to through your browser, um, they started out with, I don't know, maybe a, a few dozen uh, registrar, uh, certificate authorities that all sort of agreed any certificate authority in this like couple dozen could sign a, uh, public key on behalf of a vendor so that when you talk to that vendor, you see the, the vendor's public key, you see the signature that came from the, the certificate authority. And then your browser had already set itself to trust those couple dozen certificate authorities. Well, that was like 15, 20 years ago. Now we're up to like well over eight or 900, maybe over a thousand at this point. There's a thousand different CAs that have like, there's two top tiers, I think that, but you end up with like a, a couple of, uh, with, uh, sorry, like more, more like a thousand different CAs that end up being trusted by your browser for trusted, uh, it completely everything, no, no matter who they are, um, no matter who, who they're signing for. You trust that CA and there's a thousand of them. And some of those CAs are like the United States CIA, the government of Pakistan, the government of Iran, the government of China, uh, agents that are working for the government of China. And there's no compartmentalization there. So like any CA that ends up in your browser can, uh, can tr- sign us a public key certificate for a vendor for any vendor in the world, no matter what domain, no matter what geography. So when you go and uh, connect to Chase Bank, that certificate that you get might have actually been signed by somebody in China and your browser is not going to freak out if it is. And the if if I'm understanding this correctly, part of the problem here, it's the, the system would not be a problem if I were the person choosing exactly which CAs, which certificate authority, that's what it stands for. Yeah. Uh, 
which, which CAs that I choose to trust, if I'm the one choosing that, that is uh, in, in order to make any human interaction and especially anything on the internet possible, you have to start with who do you trust? And if I were the one deciding which CAs I wanted to trust, then this system would work correctly. Uh, mm, but it sounds like, of, the, but we don't know how to make that work. We don't know how to make it work that way. Go on. Well, it sounds like the the root problem that you just described is is that the person deciding which CAs you trust is your browser vendor. So we are implicitly giving uh, Google and Mozilla and Microsoft the ability to choose who online we trust in order to get that little lock icon. Uh, I but mean, if you hand my, it over to the user and say, okay, you're going to install the certificate authorities yourself, the user doesn't know what the hell a certificate authority is, doesn't know why they have to care, no, and the, they're just going to say yes, yes, yes. And it, the usability is bad. The, the Chase Bank website says, in order to use Chase Bank, you need to trust this CA. And like, okay, I'll trust that CA. I don't know what that means. And, um, and the... The idea of the lock so icon. It's a, it's makes, a huge bootstrapping problem. And and the idea of having of trusting the lock icon, which is what we've trained people to do for the last 15 years, is you know, always look for the lock icon and trust that. And that makes sense if if you're on the bank site, uh, which, uh, well, okay, it made sense 10 years ago. Uh, but uh, I go to a porn site and it has the lock icon now. And I'm not going to trust them to install shit on my system. I'm trusting them to show me pictures and that's about it. Well, the, lock the little icon, lock is only the lock icon is just about that. Somebody asserted that this domain belongs to the company that claims to own it. Like that, that's right, what that is about. It's, it's authenticating it, the, the vendor you're talking to. So and the lock icon doesn't establish that you, that once you establish the identity of the vendor, it's up to the user to decide if they care about whatever's on that site or if they want to install anything, if it wants to install things. The lock icon doesn't say anything at all about the safety of the site. The lock right. icon merely and there, says and never did. The, the, the site, the site has a certificate that can be traced to one of the certificates that was installed in your browser by Google or whoever made the browser you were using. Exactly. So the question becomes, say you wanted, if you were a hacker and you wanted to take over a site from like a major bank, how hard would it be for you to then show up? as having a okayed with the little lock, everything's safe. Don't worry. This is where you are. Every one of these a thousand, you know, thousand or so companies that are able to provide these certificates. What you're saying is that's a thousand possible targets where something can go wrong. Something could be hacked that will provide a certificate that it shouldn't. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it has, it is actually pretty hard to just say like, okay, I'm a small time hacker. I'm going to, attack one person or one network so that when they go to Chase Bank, they're going to get my cert instead of somebody instead of Chase Bank's certificate. Um, I, I don't know much about like the actual practice of attacking, but I believe that sort of scenario is pretty hard to set up if you don't have a lot of resources. Well, if you're re a state rewriting, government, rewriting if, if the DNS so that you're you're you can redirect somebody if somebody types in chase.com and redirecting that to your site is actually not going to be that easy. However, the the attempts that a lot of people see is somebody sending an email saying, uh, Chase Bank has a problem. You need to click on this link in order to do something. And if somebody clicks on that link, then that link will take them to your website. And that site yeah. can totally and have if a it's lock a, icon. If it's a different domain name, I mean, all you have to do is go to Let's Encrypt and you've got a cert that says that 
the person who runs this web server is in fact the one that owns this domain. So Let's Encrypt is like, yeah, everything's fine. Um, and then you can put whatever you want on that domain and trick people into going there thinking they're going to their bank. Um, the lock doesn't mean shit there. It just means that the person who requested the cert is the person that controls this domain. Well, and the real if, question, course, and if the domain is, is hack chase one, two, three, but you don't notice that because you just click on whatever, then you've just proven that. Well, right. This is usually you're getting a slightly malformed URL. So if somebody looks at it quickly in their browser, although a lot of the, especially on mobile with now, the four, right. But a lot of now in mobile, they don't even show you the browser you know they don't even show you the address anymore they just shorten it or they put the just the title there because screen real estate now is at a premium because instead of looking at these things on a huge monitor you're looking at it on a phone which is also a problem when you allow that kind of stuff because you can't actually see the address that you're on but the interesting thing to me is there's been a push and i understand the security aspect of it and there are apps out there now that you you know that you can add on to your browser that will try to change every time you type in http that will attempt to do the https the secure http and pull the website up and all websites more or less um that have the https most of them do and it'll pull that up for security the question i have is why do some sites why why are we pushing for this on every site because it starts getting people to the point to where they're used to seeing that lock it becomes something they pay no attention to which actually i think kind of lowers the bar of something bad happening you know grumpyoldbens.com we're providing a podcast we're not having any sensitive information we're not taking you know your passwords or your credit card information or anything yeah, why I should a site ask, why aren't we we should be. We There's should a be couple taking- of reasons. Let's Encrypt is the biggest movement behind this push to say, let, let their their whole mission is let's encrypt let let's let's encrypt and authenticate every public website out there, no matter what. I I don't care what it's for. It should have encryption. It says Let's Encrypt, and they've got a couple of different reasons for that. A couple of different motivations for that, and um, I think the first one is probably. Like by default, all network traffic should be encrypted between the sender and the receiver, so that parties in between can't uh, can't can't analyze it and record it and and you know spy on people. So, if you're uh, a regular slave at home and you're browsing all kinds of different websites and every single imp- information provider that you hit, if every one of them is set up with authentication and encryption, then Somebody who's just lis- listening to your ISP's connection and recording all your traffic, all they know is, you know, which IP addresses you connect to and what might be running on those IP addresses, but they don't know the nature of the content that you're viewing. And if so, it, it, it's like it's hiding things from people that would want to spy on you is one of the uh, reasons. And the other major reason is anything that that website does that needs to be protected, like an administrator logging in. Um, if you don't have HTTPS enabled on your site, every time a writer logs into the website, uh, that writer's password, wherever they're, wherever they're connecting from, uh, that, that's open to being spied upon by the cafe they're connecting from or their local ISP. And well, th- it's I just think- a matter of like, let's keep passwords hidden. I think passwords are a, a fine example of something that should always be encrypted when they're sent, even if you're not using S- SSL and, or HTTPS. And if you want to, if you want to log in with a password and in, log into a website using a password instead of using a key, 
the by far the easiest way to do it is to set up HTTPS and just say that's the only way you can access the site. But uh, for for sites like Grumpy Old Ben's that don't have any logins uh it, except for darren and and frankly you know he he vpns everything so he's fine right uh but for for sites that simply serve static data uh is is the ssl really unnecessary i think that's where like google and the other search engines are going a little too far if the information provider says i am going to require to use plain un- unencrypted http the search engines shouldn't be penalizing you for that. That's going too far. So what is the reason they're pushing it? Is it just in the misguided concept that this has to be better, this has to be more secure, or is there something else behind this that uh, we should be looking for? My only guess would be they're advertising companies and they like to punish little people. I I don't really know exactly. Um, Maybe they're altruistic and they're with Let's Encrypt and they say everything should be encrypted no matter what. I don't know. You you mentioned uh, the ISP as the uh, adversary in the SSL uh, equation. Is that everybody's that, an adversary? Well, your, your company network is an adversary. Your library is an adversary. Your school is an adversary. Okay, so I mean, all broadly categorized as as ISPs, people who transport your packets but really shouldn't be looking into them. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering about the, the man in the middle potential here. And the two things that, that I've always heard are, are potential man in the middle. Uh, one is proxy servers and the other is, uh, I, I, and this, forgive me for bringing this up if, if I'm completely off base, but, uh, things like Google amp where, uh, you know, somebody will set up a, a system for accelerating mobile pages, which basically involves rewriting your website. Uh, are those potential threats in this scheme? Probably. I don't know exactly how Google AMP works. I just know that it's a trap. It's a trap? Yeah. They, 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 their stated goal was we want to create a subset. Of, I, if I understand correctly, what they were stating was we want to create a subset of HTML so that we can load pages quickly without overloading browsers, which you know I'm, I'm bitching about that all the time. Oh, you don't um, want to overload the browser. How about you cut back on the megabytes of JavaScript that you're pushing down on me? Yeah. So, th- so they lay out these guidelines and say, your page has to look like this, but then they put all this Google juice shit on top of it. And I don't know exactly how it works, but like Google is involved and you can't just like do it organically. And if you don't do it the Google way, then you don't get listed the right way in Google search engine. And it it's all just a power grab to it. It's it's like some sort of a alternative to a walled garden kind of thing, and publishers don't like it. They, and, they and do that's, it begrudgingly. And that's Google's big stick for everything, isn't it? If you don't do what we say, we're not going to give you the proper SEO juice, and your your website will vanish off the internet because you're not going to be in our index. Yeah, and and if it is true, I don't know for sure, but if it is true that Google AMP involves a Google proxy server, literally downloading and rewriting the data for you, then yeah, of course, they're going to record every single page view and, and they're going to figure out who the receiver was and, and record that as well. And uh, that's going to go into your advertising dossier. Well, which is what everything actually comes down to for Google. That's how they're making a majority of their money is yep. in the advertising. So it's understandable so it's like, it, that it's private, they want except it. that it's not private for Google. They have access to it. Right. So they want you, they want you to feel like you're protected and that your data is safe but you know they just want to be able to hold on to it for you so for fair safekeeping and 
this is the problem when you're dealing with a lot of this stuff with, uh, you know, online backups people deal with all the time. And there are different companies that do these things in different ways. And it becomes comes down to who you trust to be telling you the truth on how their business runs, who you trust when it comes down to if I'm encrypting sensitive data to either send it to somebody online, you know, in any way, transfer it or to upload it to a service for backup. I don't know if there's any companies out there that I really trust to be doing the encryption on their, in their software on their end, and then not be able to access the stuff. I do have a good rule of thumb for you though. When you're looking at online backup and online file sharing and storage kind of solutions, if you see the key phrase, back up your key, save your password, if you lose it, you're completely screwed. If you see any wording like that in their like introduction document, then they're probably really, what they're saying is, we literally cannot read your data. Which, which is good. Which and is if, good if, if the they CIA don't say that, if, if they don't have a huge warning to say, back up your keys or you're screwed, then they probably can read your data if law enforcement wants them to or if they feel like it. Right. When the CIA comes, this is the problem that the FBI had in, what was the case? Was it a murder case? Something where the FBI wanted Apple to unlock a guy's iPhone and Apple's like, I don't know, can't do it. That was uh, San Bernardino was the big one where the um, FBI was pushing on Apple and Apple was like, no, we can't do it. And then then FBI found uh, a contractor that I think was able to break the Apple device, break it enough so that they could brute force the, the rest of the way in. Um, but Apple was like, no, it wasn't designed to be broken to. And, you know, maybe that's true, maybe not, but Apple certainly wasn't going to show their cards. And that entire incident, I, I don't have a lot of good words for Apple. I don't approve of their design philosophy and things like that, but that gained them points. If, if they are actually designing their systems such that not even Apple can get into your personal data, which is as it should be, then go Apple. Well, and that's what everybody should want. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken on the still up to with the current version of Android, you have to turn encryption on. I don't know if you know, either one of you know this, I believe it's off by default, but you can turn it on to encrypt the whole device. But I still don't believe it's a standard because, you know, it, it will kill some battery. It takes some performance because encryption does take some CPU cycles in order for it to work. And some people, you know, with their phones, they'd rather have an extra half hour of battery than than to have the encryption on. But the, the, the amount the of power that- used by encryption is a lot less than it used to be. Back in the early 2000s, the people used to not want to turn on HTTPS on a site because if the site had thousands of users at the same time, that would actually be like a huge drain on the CPU. And now it's like everything else except encryption is a huge CPU load compared to encryption. Um, and just encrypting uh, file storage sectors going to and from the storage on a single phone, it, it's hardly a big deal at all. And AES encryption is built into most CPUs now. If the, I understand correctly, the, the, the encryption on the phone takes a, a tiny fraction of the CPU compared to, and, and I know compared to running a browser. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the JavaScript engine, <laughs> yeah. I, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but uh, the, the amount of code that modern websites push down and expect your processor to run is 
orders of magnitude more than the CPU necessary to encrypt and decrypt that code. However, if you do like dump five Blu-rays onto your phone, like just transferring that huge you, amount I of could data, do that? <laughs> a, a certain percentage of that is going to be the, the encryption, but I wouldn't worry about it. I now I now I want movies on my phone. My my data plan, I don't think it's going to uh, work very well for that. We no, transferred I, I, I by like, USB. I, I mean, over a cable. If you're doing oh, it okay. over, if you're transferring it over Wi-Fi, the the Wi-Fi is using more power than the encryption is. But if you're transferring it over like a USB cable or something, the the encryption is going to show up in the CPU usage. But I wouldn't worry about it. Well, I think a big part of like the encryption on the phones too is the the mindset of people that still seems to be. I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't need to hide my data. Oh yeah. And if you say that you're an idiot. Yeah. I mean, because we, there is so much we, stuff. We, co- we covered the nothing to hide platitude in a previous episode. And I think we're going to get to it again. Yes. I've got a really simple reply to that. Uh, nothing to hide thing, I, especially with regards to personal storage devices. If I, all of my personal devices are encrypted, you need to type in a password to unlock a storage, to start them up. And I, I also have the cheapest possible devices because I'm always carrying them around the city and going to libraries and taking the train. And if I accidentally leave my laptop or my phone in the library, there, there's two scenarios. Scenario number one, which is what I actually have, is um, it, it's you you cannot unlock it unless like you've been following me around and I don't know shoulder surfing a password or something. But it, all things being equal, cool, there's no way you're going to unlock that storage device. Scenario number two is. Oh shit! What did I leave stored on that? It's not encrypted. What do I do? Oh crap! I'm screwed. You know, like uh, financial information, health information, conversations you had with other people. Th- there's always like I don't even remember what I put on that storage device. And if it's encrypted, you just say, "Ah, oh, so I lost two hundred bucks." Oh well. Right. You don't have to worry about. Oh, was my banking information in a email? Was there a do, photograph do I have to change or three hundred passwords now? Right, but, which is very helpful. But storing that data and all those passwords, it's convenient. That's what people want. They want convenience, right? Well, right. If you want the convenience, every time you, every time you unlock the UI, you've got to type in a password. Suck it up. Yes, and it's uh, it's one of those things where you don't think it's ever going to happen to you, but if you do lose a device, yes, it's a, it's a lot better feeling knowing, hey, I'm just out the device, so I'm out a certain amount of money, and I have to replace it, rather than you know, I have to call every credit card company. I have to change all of my passwords. I have to, because everybody's phone now, if you have, you know, the evil apps from the evil companies like Facebook and Twitter and your email, there's so many things that if you're, if the person's able to get into the device, they can access without having to type in a password or anything once they're in yeah. the phone. There's either a is- session in, there's a session in the browser that lasts for months or a year or there's a password in the browser. One of those two things is probably there. Otherwise, you're actually logging in every time you touch it. Which is why you'd need a good passcode, which the people that still use just four digits blow my mind. Uh, And I'm not really sold on the fingerprint thing yet because I still, I think that can be screwed with. I'm not really sold on the facial recognition and all of that because I think that can be screwed with. I'll bet you there's like 20 really common uh, finger gestures. Yeah. Well, the, the ones that are easy to do. Yeah. I, I don't know what the number is, but it, if you look for a research paper, there's probably like, these are the most common and like 5% well, it, of users don't if, use if one of these. 
if you're using the finger gesture to unlock your phone, then I don't need to choose a common one. I just need to hold your phone up the right angle to the light and I can see the smudge that you've, that you've worn into the glass. Well, that's a problem with punching in a pin as well. You put in a six digit pin, you, you, you might be able to figure out by looking at fingerprints, always wipe the glass. Right. Which we know it's inconvenient. But you need a longer password, and a lot of them will let you actually do a password now rather than just numerical. But of course, that's inconvenient because of the fact that it takes more time and it takes more effort to put them in. I mean, I think one of the big reasons that we started the crypto conversation over there in the No Agenda troll room was the little device, which I haven't set up yet because I think I need to buy a second one in order to do this thing right. Uh, After picking up one of these little Yuba keys which is the device that allows for the two-factor authentication, uh, which is a little hardware device, looks like a little, well, because it is a little USB type stick that you plug into your device that identifies who you are, at least once you set it up. So if you go and you set up your Google account, you give it your username, you give it the password, you associate one of these little hardware devices with it. And that says, even if somebody knows your username and password, they need this little device in order to get into your account. And this is basically just another you know, device doing the magic encryption behind the scenes and adding extra security. But that's even more inconvenient because then, you know, if you don't bring your little USB drive with you, you can't get into your email. And if you lose it, well, then you're screwed, which is why I need to order a second one, because if you lose one, you better have a backup. Otherwise, you're never getting into anything again. So I understand why people are afraid of some of this stuff. But you know, it, it, you're at the peril then of that concept of I've got nothing to hide when you uh, when your phone gets found and somebody's able to pick it up and get into it and they can access pretty much the most intimate details of your life. Uh, you, maybe you think a little bit different at that point. To explain the YubiKey a, a little more technically, if anybody listening is wondering, um, like what's so special about a YubiKey? Why would you have a separate computing device for this? The point of a YubiKey is that you can load keys into it and it can do cryptographic operations. The basic operations are encrypt, decrypt, sign, and authenticate a signature. Those are the four core operations. So the YubiKey can do some of those operations on keys that you can put into it, but you can never get the key back. You can unlock the device, unlock the YubiKey device and by pushing a button or whatever, and you can request that it perform an operation but you can never retrieve the key out of it. And that's, that ends up being like the core of your security. And they're it designed also so fulfills- that if you try to take them apart and if you try to retrieve the key, like the, the whole device kind of like self-destructs and falls apart in your hands. Go ahead. It also fulfills the more basic function uh, of two-factor authentication, which is it's something that you have. Yeah. And it, it does the two-factor authentication by the virtue of storing a key and doing cryptographic operations, but never giving the key back. So, uh, well, while we were on the topic of pins, I actually wanted to get your take on, uh, another substitute that a lot of people use for pins. You know, we talked about the, the weird pattern that you smear on your screen and whatnot, but a lot of people are starting to move to biometric authentication, uh, (laughs) fingerprints, face scanning. I wanted to get your take on that. Most of the biometric devices, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that most biometric devices that find their way into regular users' hands uh, are the kind of thing that could easily be spoofed with a photograph or silly putty or whatever. Like you can lift a fingerprint with silly putty and then 
just put the silly putty up against the screen and it, it's the fingerprint. You can photograph a fingerprint. You can photograph an iris. You can print out a photograph of an iris. Um, and it it's, doesn't need to be three-dimensional. It's just, it, you know, it sees the pattern like, yeah, that's it. Because cameras are two-dimensional. Yeah. And so, if it if it's not a three-dimensional sensor looking at your iris, it will respond to a photograph. So you're yeah, not, a few you're of not them convinced are three-dimensional that, now, though. You're, you're not convinced that this is Apple's killer feature, despite what uh, Tim so, Collins says on stage. And, and the if, if you assume that any of this biometric stuff can be mimicked by by uh, you know recording and reproducing the biometric data, you can never change the biometric data unless you get a new body. A ding, ding, ding. You just right. came across my biggest problem with any kind of biometric identification. And I actually, uh, I, I ran into this at Microsoft when they first started trying to add uh, uh, fingerprints with the, the card scanner briefly. Fortunately, they abandoned that. Uh, is the idea that if, if you, for any reason, the data gets out there or somebody hacks a database or it becomes spoofed, it is impossible not impossible. It is difficult and painful to change your fingerprints or your oh, yeah. face. If, or if your you eye. can't, if you can't physically control the, the device that's doing the live sensing during an authentication process, then if you can't physically control it, it's on the other side of the network, then you just have to trust that, you know, it's, it asserts that yes, this is an authentic um, observation when in fact, it's just coming off of an SD card. Because how often do you hear how, get a notification from a company saying uh, we had a data breach of some kind, and uh, the next time that you log in, you must change your password. And you can change your password. That's the kind of thing that that a lot of us have had to deal with. And you know, the corporate policy and the the corporation I was in change your password every six weeks, no matter what, which is solid security advice if if a bit inconvenient, uh, but. What I can't do is change my fingerprints every six weeks or change my eye pattern when data is breached. So using biometrics for authentication, I think, is is not ready. It's going to require uh, a lot more uh, security around the, the other end where the databases are. And speaking of things that you can't change, I, I've got a pet peeve about social security number and additional password questions like. You, you set up your uh, authentication with your bank and your bank is like, okay, so in, in case you lock yourself out, we need to know like, what's your mother's maiden name? What's your, your first pet's name? And uh, what street did you live on when you were eight years old? And, um, and then there's always a social security All, all public data that's available on Facebook. Yeah. You, you effectively cannot change your social security number. I, I know like you can if you really have to, but like that is an incredible pain in the ass. It's, and it's probably just vendor, as easy as changing your fingerprints. Yeah. Ouch. And when a vendor asks you for what street did you live on when you were eight years old, that is the, it like, it, the only proper way to respond to that is to write down a new random password in your password file and assign it to that question. Which, and if which you is do exactly anything other I, than that, you're, you're opening yourself up to like, yeah, like you said, Facebook, somebody somewhere will, will find that information about your biography and it, it can't be changed. So don't use that. We take a random password and treat it as a password. Right. We, we talked about that on grumpy old Ben's number, something on privacy about if, if you get these questions, you always just want to make up an answer that has nothing to do with it. Like if the question is, what was the first band you ever saw live? Your answer is something like, um, 
you know, Tuesday, uh, you know, or yeah. something that just makes absolutely no sense. Do it random. But I've run into the other questions, not where it's asking you to give something, you know, so you can recover your stuff later. But I've run into with our bank. When you first set up an account, they ask you questions that they're pulling from a database, like which one of these streets did you live on? Which one of this oh, yeah. is, you know, which they're car you from, own? They're pulling from advertising and, and financial dossier databases. And like, yeah, that's great. But a PI could find that stuff. Right. And the intriguing thing is this is everything we're talking about today on with crypto or, or is to keep your data safe. Right. Well, if you give money to Google, then anything's out the window. You know, all these things we're doing, the cryptography that's being done so you can log into your bank becomes completely useless if people are able to easily figure out your the questions that they have you set for a password reset. Uh, it really doesn't make sense, which is why with the stuff that is truly more hardcore crypto, including some of these Bitcoin uh, wallet devices, which are again like these very similar to the YubiKey. They're a hardware USB kind of a thing that when you set these things up, they will have you print out a page of like 12 random words that they're like, hey, put this in your safe deposit box because if you forget your password, this is the only way for you to recover this. You know, you have to treat this kind of data with the respect, you know, with the fear that if this gets out, Every bit of your data is going to be lost. In the case of the Bitcoin, every bit of your money may be lost. And, you know, I, I think a big problem with the whole Bitcoin thing that's been going on is that people don't understand the concept of how this works and have, except for seeing that the number of what a Bitcoin is worth keeps going up. And that's why people throw a lot of money in and don't even understand, you know, how you're able to use this to, to buy things in the real world. I don't think they understand what's going on with the cryptocurrencies and exactly what they even are, where the money is, how it works. And, you know, I'm surprised at this point that, you know, as, as big of a story as it is, you know, it's still not something that is acceptable. You know, you can't just walk to your local 7-Eleven and go, hey, I want to buy a, you know, a Frosty or a, a slushy with my Bitcoin. They tried that for a while in a bunch of isolated businesses like hey you can you can buy pizza from us with bitcoin and and that was like a fun little stunt and proves that the math works and the tech works but it never really caught on and even some big businesses that do high volume that decided to do that then some of them decided not to do it anymore after bitcoin was volatile for a while and it's just like ah oh, this is too much trouble we, we we prove that it works but nobody cares enough so let's shut it down Right. And I think that one of the biggest problems with Bitcoin is because it's decentralized and because it has to deal with these encryption codes, when you buy something via Bitcoin, it's not like when somebody uh, takes your credit card, you know, and swipes it or uses the little, uh, you know, the little uh, key in there. That's an instantaneous transaction. You know, the bank immediately says, boom, this happens. When you're oh, using yeah. Bitcoin is not street ready. It was for a while, but now it's like you do a Bitcoin transaction and nobody's really sure that it's done until like at least half an hour later. Right. Which is absolutely, you know, even if it was 10 minutes, would you see the way Bitcoin goes up and down on a minute by minute basis? Is, is that because, uh, the, the block has to be finalized before 
the transaction is done. Is that how that works? Uh, I, it's something like that. Like in Bitcoin, there's a new block every 10 minutes. Okay. And Bitcoin has like a, some kind of features built in that allow you to sort of like you can, you can prove with some pretty good, uh, level of certainty that a transaction is valid before the 10 minute mark happens. But at, at, I know at times in the recent past, the Bitcoin network is just so much traffic and so much data being added to the blockchain at every, um, at, at every 10 minute block. Um, it's basically, gone way past the point where you could safely use it in a street vendor situation. So that, and that's actually an intriguing point too, which is the more it's being used, the more the transaction time is slowing down, yeah, which is making it, it, it does not scale. It, 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 it doesn't scale the way they had hoped that it might, or, or, you know, it, we need like another version on top of it or something. Or computers that are like 15 times faster or, you know, to do this processing, or is it, is it again, because it's all just over the internet and there are slowdowns along the way, just inherent to the system. I don't understand it enough to, to say that. Another concern. I just know that it doesn't scale. Go ahead. Another concern that I've had about, uh, Bitcoin. Well, uh, I, I admit that I, I actually don't know very much about the, the cryptocurrency uh, the way it is now, I really looked it up back in uh, what 2011 when Bitcoin really first started exploding. Uh, but one of the first things that everybody always said is it's anonymous. And I, my research showed that Bitcoin itself was exactly the opposite of that, that that pizza that you were able to buy back in 2012, because it was novel to use Bitcoin to buy a pizza is still on the blockchain. And everybody knows that you bought this pizza and it's, it's a permanent part of the overall Bitcoin ledger forever. Um, is that, I, I guess, uh, is that still a concern? Well, I think it is because you're, you're only anonymous up until the point that somebody, cause everybody, they use these things called wallets. You know, that's where your money goes into your Bitcoin wallet. And that's basically a identifying number for lack of, you know, just a very, to simplify it's, the whole thing. It's a thing. long number. Yes. So once somebody can identify you via that number, now if which you is were scarily easily, yeah. right, right. Through one transaction. So if you have a bunch of Bitcoin and you send it to me and just say, this is, you know, this is a donation for the show, then I don't know who you are. I can't track you down. But the minute you pay something with that Bitcoin, and have somebody send you something in the snail mail or, you know, that you give them your name and address so they, or your email address so they can email you something, there's a link back to you. So it's, it's anonymous if you never give your information with it, but it's getting, you know, harder. Most people that are using Bitcoin are using, um, at least in not going into the people that are in the tech community and the hacking kind of a thing, but people that are your average Joe who are playing around with Bitcoin are probably using a site like Coinbase, which is all FDIC, you know, assured and all insured and everything else. But when you sign up for these services, you're giving them all of your information. So is Bitcoin anonymous? Can you do Bitcoin in a way that is anonymous? Sure. Is it easy to keep that anonymity? Almost impossible. Because as, as you said, every transaction for that particular coin exists forever. I believe that never, that never does leave the chain. So everything that you do 
Every interaction a with the network is an opportunity to de-anonymize a person. You could think of it, here's a stupid analogy. You go to the Roman Forum and everybody's wearing a hood with a random serial number and all the serial numbers are different. So it's like, yeah, I don't know who that is, but, you know, if, if we sometime down the road figure out that that serial number belongs to Bob, well, we, now we know everything that Bob did. Right. Every is, transaction becomes open. Which is the problem with any any form of anonymized data. Anonymizing, you know, if, if you have a database, uh, then you can anonymize the database by replacing all the names with numbers and saying, here, go yeah, analyze Net- this. And- I think Netflix had a problem with that a while ago. They were... Netflix was putting out these, or maybe it was AOL. I, I know Netflix did it a few times. They put out this huge data set of like, here is a bunch of usage data with our video database. And we want you, the public, to invent a better algorithm for predicting what else the same people would want to see. So it's like, you know, help us make our prediction algorithm better to make better suggestions. And they, they thought it was a great idea. Like, let, let's share this data and, and people will come up with better algorithms and we'll reward the ones that we want to use and, and pay for them. But what actually happened was people were able to take some of that, you know, anonymized data and uh, track that and via other external data were able to connect a single profile to some real world person. Um, I don't know for sure that that happened with the Netflix thing, but it happened with other vendors that were doing a similar kind of experiment. Like, let's put out this anonymized data and like, oh, shit, it's not really that anonymous. I definitely remember that story with the the name Netflix attached to it, but I don't know if they were the first. Yeah. Well, this kind of stuff happens all the time. Every time you install software, it seems to be like, hey, do you want to take part in this? Send anonymous data to whether it's Microsoft or Anybody, I always click no. Not that I believe they're not sending that data anyway. See, it's people like you who always click no. That's the reason Microsoft doesn't ask anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I can believe that, but uh, that's not going to stop me from saying no or trying to block that in one way or another. But I mean, the basically though, the way Bitcoin works is through the the encryption system, which is asymmetric encryption. So you have a public key. In a private key, which is the way almost everything is now. We're we're long past the days of the symmetric encryption, which is you know if you take a a bunch of files and you put them into a zip archive with a password, you have to give the person on the other end the same password. We still use symmetric encryption. Um, whenever you uh, whenever there's a stream or a large file being encrypted, pretty much everything. What happens is you use public key cryptography to establish a shared key for this session, for this file, for this transmission, whatever, for this channel. So uh, the reason we do that is because the um, the shared key cryptography runs much quicker. And the public key cryptography is a lot slower, but you only need it for a few kilobytes of uh, introduction exchange. And then... You exchange a shared key and then use that for the whole session. That makes sense. How safe Sorry to be is? <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. That's it. why you're here. <laughs> this is to, you know, to find out exactly the inner workings on this stuff. Um, I mean, I know some of the other cryptocurrencies have had problems with, you know, what they call being hacked. But I think it was mainly people taking fifty-one um, percent control and were able to do some bad things. With the currency where, you know, something like Bitcoin is way too big ever to have to worry about something like that. But this 
overall encryption that's being used, which is the public key, private key, which is used on a lot of different things. How safe is that? I mean, I read something the other day when doing some prep work for the show, and everybody knows I hate to do prep work, but they said with the current um, even 128-bit encryption that the computers today would take trillions of years to find, to try every possibility that that key could be. I mean, I think that's probably exaggerating a little bit, but is the 128 bit at this point safe enough to where for the next 10 years, nobody's going to have to worry about this being brute forced? You could put it this way. If you use the sufficiently large public key sizes that whatever manual says you should use, um, you know, depending on the crypto system or whatever, um, 512 bit keys, 1024 bit keys, whatever, whatever the current recommendation is, you can consider that to be virtually completely unbreakable as far as the math goes. Right? And it, finding a on, problem on modern this, systems. Yeah. That, that recommended in this, that recommended number keeps going up because modern well, systems keep getting better. That's just because the, the uh, current systems can handle more and more overhead on the, the encryption side. So uh, the, they'll tell you to use like the highest you can go without the, the below the point where you, it's really a pain in the ass to use it normally. They're, they're not, they're not thinking about the other side cracking it. Um, that, that's always going to be like a huge deal. Um, and, and I, there are some old crypto systems like triple DES has, is effectively broken. Um, and you need to consider that. But what I'm trying to get at is if you use the recommended key sizes, you do everything right. You can consider that like really safe, like completely unbreakable for 10, 15, 20 years or whatever. Uh, and unbreakable except by state actors for a few hundred years after that. However, it's not the math and the software and the key size that matters. What matters is uh, if if you have like state level uh, capabilities and you're attacking a particular target, like you have a mission, like um, maybe somebody's it's, mail it's server, always go- the the cryptography is always going to fail because of something that was not part of the cryptography. If if nothing else, you've got rubber hose cri- crypto analysis. Yeah, <laughs> it, it threatened to threatened to torture someone, threatened to hit them with a wrench, um, ask questions. Uh, and spy on the person before they know they're a target, you're always going to find a way to get around it. Um, and so you, you can you can say, okay, I use cryptography, but what are my other security layers? Right. And this is also where picking a, like with the cell phones, we're picking a password, passphrase comes into case for most people because this is something that when you have to enter this information, this password passphrase to get your data to be able to access it. The normal person's going to want to make it something they can remember, which of course, by that in its very, you know, the very concept should make it easier to guess. But uh, I think one of the things that we had talked about, uh, Brendan, was the question of, hey, are you better off having a, say, a 10 character password that is completely randomized? with, of course, upper lowercase and all the different characters that you can throw in. Is that better or worse than stringing together four or five words with a couple of random symbols between each word? Because then instead of a 10 character thing, even though 
It may be something that you can remember. It could be, you know, Grumpy with a capital Y, five, Benz with a capital E, seven, then another word, then the ampersand, then, you know, you can get this up to 30 characters that you can remember as opposed to 10 characters that you, you're never going to remember. I'm, and, I'm not even sure you need the punctuation in there. Uh, there's an excellent XKCD comic. Uh, if you look up correct horse battery staple. Yes, I believe that's exactly what uh, Brendan uh, posted. Yeah, and with. there's, there's a website called XKPassWD.net, XKPASSWD.net. And it's basically an which app will be that in the show inside notes. your browser, uh, which will do what XKCD is recommending. Uh, it, it has a couple of other methods for generating passwords, but it will be, it's got a word dictionary built into the webpage and it picks a bunch of random words and it says, here's what you can use for a password and keep clicking the button until you see one that you like, as long as it's not like something out of your biography. Um, oh, it, I'm, I'm, I'm always telling that when like I had to, I t- had to explain this to my mother a few different times and she finally got it. After a couple of years, if you generated your password, then it came out of your head and it's not random. If you push a button on a computer and it gives you a random password based on random numbers, that's random. But if you thought up the password, it's not random. Somebody could guess it. Um, but uh, one of you was asking about, like, uh, what is it better to have completely random letters and numbers or to have a string of words? Um I would say don't worry about it. And if you really want to know, like, is one better than the other for a particular length, um, install something like KeePass, which is a, uh, a password uh, database that you run on your local computer. And KeePass has a, uh, when you enter in a new password, whether it, it, it's generated in KeePass or you provide it to KeePass, it has a little indicator that says, this string that you gave me is worth this many bits of entropy. and it's not like the final word on that, but it, it will give you a pretty good rule of thumb of like, is this 10 random characters better or worse than 20, 20 letters of passwords? Um, so like, don't make your own rule of thumb, just use some existing software to, to estimate the entropy of a password. And that's what you should use as, as your, your, your measurement, which is better than the other. So the, the eight character word P A S S W O R D does, does that have enough entropy? Would you recommend people use that? KeePass is going to de- detect that and say, oh, that's a dictionary word and it's got no other decorations on it. That's completely no good. It's going to have like, you know, four or five bits of entropy. That's actually pretty good. Uh, if, if, because we haven't had enough ranting in this episode, I'm, I'm going to go and go ahead. You, you can stop me if I'm completely off base here, but uh, when, when a site or an app has a password complexity requirement. Oh, you oh, have God. to have you have to have three capital letters and four lowercase letters and uh, three that is such a pieces pain of in the symbol when- and a demonic glyph in your password. And- when I've got my when I've got my password uh, in KeePass, I've got the password settings to say, "Give me a random twenty-five letter password, just twenty-five uppercase lowercase letters." Like and, and twenty-five letters is a in. lot of entropy. Yeah. And then you paste that into the thing and it's like, no, first of all, your password is too long. And secondly, you don't have any symbols. Your password is too long. Are you trying to destroy my security too long? Yeah, I have. I have literally seen your password is too long. And I'm like, you're doing it wrong. Yes, I've run into that recently, as well as ones that will allow some symbols, but not others. And that I simply don't understand. And then you have to like play with your password generator until you get an acceptable password. Like. 
why can't I just make a really long string and paste it in there? That would be too easy. And, because, uh, and by the way, if, if you the, the real red flag on the password length limits is if, if there's a password length limit, that's a pretty good indicator. They're probably storing the actual password, which is a complete like you never you're not supposed to do that. I, I, you're supposed site, to store a I, hash I, of the password. I actually and saw then when the user site. enters the password again, it gets hashed and we say, oh, OK, the same hash. They must have gotten the password right. But you never store the actual password. Because then if somebody steals the database, they've got everyone's password, which is probably used on other sites as well. I kid you not. It was about two weeks ago. I encountered a site that said you are not allowed to have a single quote character in your password. And I'm like, <laughs> SQL injection attacks in the password? Yeah. Well, yeah, people will do that. But that takes me back. I remember uh, a company that my uh, dad had worked for where I was in the, you know, remoted into their system and was able to pull down the, the file that contained the username, you know, colon slash, then the hash. And of course ran the program. Uh, was it Jack the Ripper, John, uh, John the Ripper, one of those programs. And, uh, you know, like a day or two later, like 80% of the passwords were just there. Uh, so even sometimes if people are doing things right, if somebody on their other end has the ability to access those files and know what they're doing, the simpler passwords are going to be broken more quickly, which is, again, why I would assume that having a longer, even easier to remember password would be better. Because if you're doing brute force, and again, I know there are dictionary attacks and everything like that, but overall doing brute force, if you're throwing random symbols and numbers in between the words, you're probably going to still just be brute forcing, trying every five letter password, every six letter password. And if you got like a 40 character thing that you can remember, it's still probably going to be really hard to brute force that. The the problem with the ran- throwing random symbols into a password is that they are just another character for uh, an algorithmic method of hacking a password, uh, but they're hard for a human to learn. To, to remember and what you the, the the ideal thing for a password is you want you you want lots of bits of entropy like like brandon said uh, you you want bits of entropy so that it's because that is the thing that makes it hard for a computer to guess but beyond that how you get those bits of entropy well uh, there, there's always a trade-off and a pull between security and convenience. And if you can get the same number of bits of entropy with something that is possible for a human to remember, you've got more convenience and you're less likely to have somebody sacrifice your security by writing your password on a post-it note because they're like, I don't remember. Was that a dash or an underscore? And was that ampersand supposed to be a dollar sign? I'm and this, this all suggests the really important point that we should have made earlier that if you're not using a password gener- a password manager, you're probably not doing it right. What you should be doing is you have a password manager like KeePass, that's K-E-E-P-A-S-S, and there's a bunch of alternatives, that, things that work like that. But the idea is you create this encrypted database that is locked with a single password that really matters, and you can make that like, you know, six random words or whatever you feel comfortable with. And then inside of that database, whenever a vendor needs you to, to create a password, you have the password manager create a completely random password and keep banging on until you get one that satisfies the rules. But then every password is not only really complicated, but completely different from every other vendor's password. And you don't have to remember it. All you have to do is 
unlock your password database and copy and paste. The only passwords that should be simple enough that they're easy to type are the ones that like, you know, literally you need to use another device to log in, or it's the one that unlocks your desktop, or you know, there's a few of those, but everything else is just copy and paste from your password manager. Right. And I use a robo form and have been using that for uh, more years than I can, can remember at this point. And again, you have to trust the people that are putting out that software, the company that puts out RoboForm, I do trust these, they've been around for a long time. And like we were talking about with the online backups, they've got the whole zero knowledge thing, which is if that passphrase that you set up to protect all of these passwords, if you forget that, there's no way to recover that. There's no way for them to reset that, which is good because that means nobody can access that information Except it means you, there's no way for the FBI to access that information. Right. Well, there's, they there's can no try. way for, for the dark web hacker who breached the company database to access that information. Right. Which is Provided the only way to keep your stuff still secure, safe. Yes. And is not, if your computer is not recording your keystrokes, that sort of thing. Right. Which is why you want to look for the stuff with the, you know, the zero knowledge. If you're doing, you know, the online backups and stuff like that, which again, if you lose your passphrase, you have lost access to your data, but the, you know, one thing that Brendan and I were complaining about when we were talking about this the other day, which was the the concept that this encryption stuff has been around for a long time. And while there's a lot of things that have been made easy with technology, the encryption concept really has not. I mean, even using things, you know, I know you've got your problems with the Gmails and all that, but any kind of web email service, you know, you. If you want to send a message that's private that, you know, Google can't see, you can still do that through Gmail. But unfortunately, at this point, it's still using another piece of software that you have to go type your message into another piece of software, hit encrypt, and then cut and paste that and put it into the Gmail uh, window and then send that to somebody. And then they have to take that and cut and paste. The biggest problem with that isn't even the copy and paste. The biggest problem is key management. How do I get? the public key of the person I want to send an encrypted message to, how do I get it and know that I've got the correct public key? That is the pain in the ass. Right. I mean, there are databases and, and you can ask, but I mean, I know like Adam Curry, he's his public key. He's posted that before. If you want to send them in, a, you know, something that's very secure, the person that you're sending it to has to be in on this and know what this is. And, and that's always a problem because half the time, this isn't going to be something that's on their radar. Right. Yeah. You know, the that's where the whole public and private it seems like it should be a very simple concept that if everybody actually go to implement it. Right. Because the problem exists between the keyboard and the mouse or the keyboard and the chair. So years ago they created this software PGP, pretty good in uh, privacy, or pretty good privacy. That was a commercial product that established a protocol for encrypting and decrypting messages and uh, signing and authenticating signatures and for sharing public keys, um, for, for creating public private key pair and then sharing the public key. So PGP established all the, the mathematical rules, the software protocols that how is this going to work? And it, it did really well at that. And then, um, the, uh, I believe it was, uh, people who were members of the GNU project, uh, or it might have been separate. Sometimes, uh, GNU gets applied to other teams and other software, but, Somebody created GNU Privacy Guard, which is basically a free open source version of PGP, which is great. And it has all the same protocols and, and they have 
extended it and updated it over the years to keep track of uh, new uh, encryption systems and key sizes and what the, the best practices and all that. So uh, I believe it was really in the GPG era that they established this idea of we're going to have this web of trust. That's how we're going to do public key infrastructure. That's how we're going to exchange and authenticate and keep track of public keys. We're going to do web of trust. And they set it up, they set up all this, uh, this wonderful features in the software and, uh, social protocols, how you do it. And they said, okay, here's how it's going to go. In order to get anybody's key, you need to first get a copy of the key. And then you need to establish a link through the social network of, uh, I know this person and they know another person. Everybody signed each other's keys. And then eventually I can find, uh, a, a, you know, six degrees of separation to say this new key that I just got, I can authenticate it because I've got this chain of people that have signed each other's keys all the way to that other person. Right. And they even established this whole, uh, they, they have, they have a ritual of key signing parties where you'd go to your amateur computer club and we'd have a key signing party. And here, here's this magical way that we do it. We look at each other's government identities, government ID cards and documents and whatever and prove Okay, I really know that this this person who's a stranger to me, he brought his license or whatever. I've authenticated it, so I signed his key, and we we put the everybody's mutual signatures up on the internet, and we can share all that. That's all wonderful, but it doesn't help grandma at home, you know, who just barely knows how to start up AOL. It doesn't help her get somebody's key in an authenticated way. Yeah, That's definitely all a hurdle. Hurting. I always encourage yeah. all of my relatives to go to key signing parties. <laughs> not key swapping parties I, or i've what? done I, i've been key signing parties and it's fun but it it socially and in terms of like actual practical use it's completely meaningless um it, it has no use whatsoever so if you're using gpg you're basically your only option is figure out some way outside of the system to authenticate the key and the most the most uh, common way is i believe that the source is correct so i'm fine but right. that's Which basically is, what ends up happening. Yeah, I remember using a, uh, I don't remember the name of the plugin, but when using AOL Messenger back in the day, probably 15 years ago, maybe even more uh, through Pigeon, which is still a, a great messenger software that's still around, I believe, open source. They had a plugin since AOL wasn't doing the encryption. There was a plugin that you could use, but the you, both sides had to have the plugin and that was the whole thing, which was, oh, are you sure you trust this? It's like, well, yeah, there. So, I mean, it was it was secure, much more secure than AOL. But, you know, that is where the problem comes down to is, are you sure that the person that you're authenticating is who you think they are? And, uh, you know, that's that's something they still haven't been able to figure out an easy the, way to do this. The problem, of course, isn't am I really talking to the other the like? You know, I know Bob. Am I talking to Bob on the other side? Is that Bob? That's, that's not the problem so much as am I talking to a proxy server who is talking to Bob? And, you know, am I using Bob's key or am I using the proxy server's key? Um, that's what the, the problem is we're trying to establish. And uh, so GPG did that and they had that whole web of trust thing. And if you if you're a newbie and you set up GPG with nice, friendly graphical user interface, the GUI it's following exactly what it says in the manual. And the manual has us all this crap about web of trust and key signing parties. And you're looking at this and your eyes are just glazing over if you're, if you're 
you just want to make it work. And you have like, what is this key signing party shit? I just want to use this. Right. Um, if you have two random people, I mean, so if you're something like, you know, two people that aren't into the tech stuff on the level that, you know, dudes named Ben are, and somebody's like, Hey, you know what? I really need to send my parents this legal information, but it needs to be encrypted. What's the easiest way to do that? There's really no simple answer at this point. Yeah. It, it's really, it, it, there's a bunch of halfway answers that are good enough for most people, but they're not really secure. I, I, you can use, we were talking about uh, encrypted zip files with, uh, with, with a pre-shared key. People still do that. And I do it all the time. I'll say, okay, I'm going to email you a zip file. It's encrypted with a shared key. I'm going to tell you that key over the phone. And then you'd basically just assume that the phone is secure. And it probably is. And if you're not a target, nobody's ever going to find out. But if you are, if you're Julian Assange, you can't share a key over the phone. But if you're not Julian Assange, who the hell cares? <laughs> right. You're most likely not a target. Yeah. But there was a, there was a story not too long ago where there was this a tech guy. I don't remember what his name was, but he wanted to see what was, you know, how secure his identity was. So he contacted a couple hackers that he knew and said, tell you what, I'm giving you my permission, you know, do, do whatever you can do to access my information. And even though he was the one that had set this up, it was something really stupid that they got him with a phishing thing for something like they knew he used. It was something like Netflix. Like, oh, there was a problem with your account. There was so something. This guy knew that this guy knew that he was being actively attacked by multiple yes. parties and yes. he fell for a phishing attack. Yes. Which That's to me awesome. says that that says everything you need to know about security that even the guy that set this up was was aware of this going on, that the phishing attempt still looked real enough to where he went through, gave the information, and they were like, haha, gotcha. Yeah. That's why if you ever talk to a vendor and they they try to tell you our our system is completely secure, it can't be broken, they're full of shit. And and not only are they full of shit, they don't know what they're doing. If anyone asserts that they can't be broken into, they're they're stupid. Yes, because the best encryption falls apart with the person that's in charge of the passwords, in charge of the keys. And uh, we've there's talked always going to be something outside of the math that is a weak link in the chain. Right. And we've talked about that on Grumpy Old Ben's a couple of times. Kevin Mitnick, who who is known as being a great hacker, but after reading his books, you realize he was just a really good social engineer. I'm sure he's good with computers, but he's excellent with people and getting them to give him what he needed to access their data. Well, 30% of most hacking is technical skill and the other 70% is charisma because, because you're, you're not usually hacking a purely computerized system. The weak point in almost all the systems is people and technical skills are not going to get you to hack people, but charisma will. And people want to be helpful. That was, that was the one thing I took from Mitnick's books is that if you act like you should be asking them these questions and you are very nice, people want to be helpful, especially if you're polite. And he's like, especially if you call them up with like, yeah, hey, uh, hey, Ryan, I'm with the, the you know tech down here, the tech support. Uh, we have to do a reboot on this, and I'll be able to get your system back up a lot quicker if you just give me your your login information. I'll make this a hell of a lot easier for you because I don't want you to have to wait an no, hour for no, this to come back up. Fuck you, Windows. Up. I am not rebooting today. <laughs> and 
people want to be helpful, but also they don't want to be confrontational. If That's you, true. you, if you get through the door of any business, it, it doesn't even like even businesses that are, that think that they have good security and, 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 and really want to be secure because they're dealing with really sensitive data. If you get through the door and if you act like you're supposed to be there and you look like you're supposed to be there and, and you don't even have to have the right badge, you just have to have a badge. People will ignore you if you look like you're doing there. If you're, if you're, you act like you're doing a job that was assigned to you, you will be completely ignored unless you address them. It's, that's and you the, can do whatever you want. That's the clipboard attack. Yep. Uh, you, you can walk into any business anywhere. And as long as you're holding a clipboard, nobody is going to ask you questions was, was the, I mean, that that's from before the computing time. I heard about that back in the eighties. Well, and the most, and, and how many times is the janitor closet the same as the telephone closet? You know, <laughs> you want to get into a telephone closet. All you need is a janitor's uniform. Yeah. And yeah. that's now where the, the networks are. And that is where you can put these devices. Uh, you know, the, the fact that you can put these little, well, one Wi-Fi pineapples, which is something that we've talked about in the past, more privacy with your, you know, going to a Starbucks, somebody can, you know, spoof the, the Wi-Fi hotspot, but with corporate espionage at this point, in order to get access to a computer, the best, easiest way to do it is to have physical access. And one, yes, if you do the clipboard thing, the clipboard attack, and you can actually walk into an office where you can, you know, it's great. Again, acting as a janitor. Oh, we're just dusting behind this computer. Let me slip this USB key in. But even if you can't get access to the building, as we've also, I think, talked about before, all you need to do is drop a couple of these USB loaded up with your favorite malware in the parking lot of the business or in the front of the building. And there's a pretty good chance some idiot's going to pick it up, take it inside and be like, it still works. It, people know about that and it doesn't work as well as it used to 15 years ago, but it still works. Because they think, well, so, you know, the best thing would be if I was trying to get into a specific company. I would get like a little sticker with the company logo and put that on the USB drive. So when somebody found it, they'd be like, oh, well, this is obviously somebody that works here. Maybe if I put it in, I can find out whose it is. And, you know, people are easy to uh, they're way too trusting, even when they know they shouldn't be. And the, the cryptology, the cryptography landscape, I don't think is going to get any better until people understand what's going on and until they you know, understand what the software is actually doing. And I'm not saying that I recommend that somebody takes, you know, all of their family photos that are, they have sitting on their hard drives and that those have to be encrypted. But, you know, we all have banking well, maybe information. Maybe not with your family. But, but if <laughs> you have my okay. policy, if you have my policy of encrypting everything, then if a device is lost or stolen, you don't have to think about what was st stored on it. That's true. You have to know what's on each individual device. And we had talked about uh, Veracrypt, which is an open source project. Before we get into the, you know, the nuts and bolts there to let people know that this thing exists and how it works, how do you feel the difference between um, Veracrypt and what's it, BitLocker that Microsoft now includes with the pro version? I don't trust anything Microsoft puts out. Um, would you trust Veracrypt more than uh, BitLocker less, or is it pretty much the same thing? Personally, I think I would trust uh, Veracrypt more if I was really concerned about security because Veracrypt took over the TrueCrypt project after the um, 
I don't know if we should get into this because I don't remember all the details, but basically the the, the developer of TrueCrypt quit. And, yeah, they disappeared uh, quickly, yeah. which yeah. was a, it was a weird story when that happened. There, there the was an audit and and like uh, some problems were found, and there may have been some problems that may, that were not made public. But Veracrypt is developed in the open, and it's open source software, and that's as good as you're going to get for like you know it, it, at some point you have to trust somebody. Um, but if if you say okay, at some point you got to trust somebody, well. If you're inclined to trust Microsoft at all, BitLocker runs faster on Windows than Veracrypt does. And, Makes sense. Uh, you know, we were talking about speed of cryptography for block storage devices, and it's not so important on the phone. But when you're transferring gigabytes of data on a computer, it does kind of. And and if multiple processes are con- competing for the same storage device, um, it can add up. And BitLocker runs faster and. I'm perfectly fine using BitLocker for my company computer because we're all in on Microsoft anyway. Would I use BitLocker at home? No. I, I don't use Windows at home and BitLocker doesn't work on anything else. But even if I was using Windows, I would probably use Veracrypt instead of BitLocker at home um, because it, I think privacy is a little more important than performance. But you have to weigh all of your options and all of the, the pros and cons of everything. Right. And Veracrypt is fairly, I mean, it's not the most intuitive software. Don't get me wrong, but it's fairly easy to use if you're willing to uh, read the documentation and understand what it's doing. You know, I found it to be very helpful if you're looking to uh, set up thumb drives, which that's the one thing, you know, I I would agree with you that, you know, encrypt everything. If you're ever going to be trading with another party that might be using another OS, Veracrypt is like the only way you want to do it. Right, because it does work across Mac, uh, Windows. It's really Linux. easy to install as long as the two people know the same password. It, it's incredibly easy to set up, and, and it doesn't get in your way. And if you're using a thumb drive and not encrypting, I think that is absolutely nuts because you're carrying these things around, and they are so easily lost. And, I mean, the beautiful thing with Veracrypt, too, is that when somebody plugs in one of these thumb drives, if they find it, it just looks like a, a blank drive. So it's not even like they think there's something there to be found. They're just, that ah, was a blank drive. And, you know, unless you know what you're looking for, you're never going to even know the, the data's there. And the Veracrypt does some cool stuff too. So if you want to hide a volume, you know, just in case, you know, like we were talking about earlier, somebody threatens to hit you over the head with a wrench. If you don't give them the key to log into your, to your drive, well, you could have another hidden you know, partition underneath that. So yeah, you give them the password, they see it pops up on the screen, but your data and, is and still safe. Just to be clear, you don't have to, uh, across the FBI or CIA or NSA, you don't have to, uh, find yourself in a dark torture interview room with them in order to be concerned about wanting to, to be able to secure your data. You have to do something that, that I know, I know that this makes you look really guilty, but if you try to cross the border, exactly. then, then your every electronic device you have on you, uh, the the border control, they don't care. You don't have to be under suspicion. They're just going to crack point, your shit I open. Would, at this point, I'm not carrying a phone or a storage device or no. a computer across the border. When, when I go to Vancouver, I don't take my to. phone anymore. Yeah. If, if my company orders me to to do business and, you know, that's basically the whole the whole equation is on them, the whole, um, you know, pro and con and, and security that that's all on them. I'll just follow the directions of my company. But if it's for me, 
I'm not carrying any storage devices, no computers, no phones. If I really need a phone on the other end, I'm going to mail it to myself. And just, I mean, on the topic of the the TrueCrypt thing, that's that's actually one of the real benefits of the software is uh, if you have to carry your phone with you, then you can, or or your device of whatever kind, you can create that secret partition, and then the the casual cursory search is not going to turn up anything. And if you don't do anything else suspicious, then chances are they're not going to go any deeper. But as but you pointed if, out, if do you the, want to take that chance? If the volume that you share with the TSA, if, if that volume is suspiciously brand new and blank, they might look at you kind of funny. And they're, they had, they're not stupid. If you've pissed them off already, they might start, you know, they, okay, we're going to need to go in the special room. And, and yeah, if you, you piss them off, you're not special. getting your phone back anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You know, what, the interesting thing there, too, is though you have, you know, the SD cards that you can now take out. So if you really needed to move the data, you know, you, you probably wouldn't keep the SD card in your phone. No, and, you you keep it in your shoe next to the explosives. Right. <laughs> well, I'm not flying with you. That doesn't that seems like you might get flagged pretty easily. But TrueCrypt has been, you know, fun to play around with just to learn about the encryption uh, it's, it seems fairly quick, even on the, the thumb drives for, you know, what did I set up something like a 20 gigabyte, uh, uh, partition and, you know, it loads pretty quick and the data's there and you can just pop it out and the, it comes back down to the same thing though. You have to have a passphrase and well, no, actually I'm lying. Cause you don't need to have a passphrase. You can leave the passphrase completely blank you and can use just, the YubiKey. right. You can use the YubiKey or you can create a key file, or you can use any random file, which I love the concept of. You could have a very simple password, you know, but your favorite picture of your dog that nobody would ever even think twice about that's your wallpaper or something. You know, you need to include that in the key files for the thing to decrypt, which is, and you can use more than one key file. So it's, it's a very, um, if you really can't remember passwords at all, uh, but of course, I think as Brendan, I think you said, well, of course, those key files could get lost. They could be deleted or something like that. And then you're never getting your data back. Yeah, it's but, a bit of a pain. Yes. And it, if if you if you set true, if you set Veracrypt to not remember what key file you used before, which is, I think that's the default and it's the only sane thing, right. then you've got to go and browse to that location where the key file is every time. And that can kind of be a pain too. Yes, definitely not convenient. But if you have something that needs to be really secure, and you don't access it a lot. It's it's an option, which is you know for some I, people. I would, I, if I wanted to be really secure with Veracrypt, I would probably use YubiKey and a bracelet. As as we've established already, I think security is pretty much never convenient. No, no, I think you're absolutely right about that, and it comes down to as always that balance of how much security you want, as opposed to how convenient it is. And I think most people err on the side of, I want it to be convenient until something bad happens. And then they're the ones with three YubiKeys around their neck and a 6,000 character password. And, uh, you know, Speaking of which the, uh, in the, the border crossing, like, you know, the, the cops are really starting to make me feel scared. Does YubiKey have a self-destruct mode? I do not know. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a, a bad idea, except maybe like, you'd like write hold- a hammer. <laughs> I think it's only got one button, but if it had like two or three buttons and like hold two of them for 10 seconds, like, you know, okay, TSA, you're never going to get it. Neither am I because it's gone. Right. Right. Yeah. You, <laughs> you make sure your data is backed up before you leave. But, uh, you know, that wouldn't be. Of course, 
it, if the TSA starts harassing you, the first thing you're going to do, they're going to do is separate you from your YubiKey. Right. Well, I guess that's, you know, if that becomes the other question now is, you know, if you're traveling and going through TSA, which is really the only security checkpoints I'm familiar with. If you're in other countries, you may be going through other types of checkpoints. Yeah. But other does, countries have like checkpoints to get in and out of the city sometimes. Yeah. So not, no, most of them are just thugs, but as, sometimes the thug might be after something. As somebody who lives within a hundred miles of a national border. Yes. Sometimes the countries do. You know, so, so the question becomes if the TSA or whatever authority or non-authority you're dealing with sees a YubiKey, does that all of a sudden now send up the red flags that you've got something to hide? And, you know, does that make you less secure? Because now your, your, your vigilance to your security concept by having don't one of these about, keys. Don't forget about looking the part though. If you're wearing a suit and you like, you know, if you look like a certain type of person, they're just going to say, Oh, that's just for business as enterprise requires it. And that's- like, Oh, nothing to see here. That's, that's the charisma thing. That's another form of obfuscation. Uh, the, the one problem with encryption and the problem is caused entirely by uh, people saying using the nothing to hide argument and not using it is that when something is encrypted, it is automatically suspect. And if you, if you decide, if, if you get to a point where people use encryption all the time for everything, then it's no longer suspect when somebody uses encryption, but, and it's gotten to the point where every company more than like 20 or 30 people uses encryption for everything, which is actually so, good. If so if you, if you look like you're doing business, then you're fine. You're, you're just like everyone else. Um, I, I wanted to get prescriptive uh, here near the end uh, with regards to uh, recommendations. Uh, as as I pointed out, the uh, the most common by far and uh, one of the most powerful sort of and insidious forms of security that people use today is security through obscurity. And when I say powerful, what I mean is it works most of the time, which is why it's insidious. Uh, It it works when you're not being targeted. And uh, it also feeds in directly to the nothing to hide argument, which I think we all have pretty much uh, decided is is bunk. Um, Do you have recommendation for people who have no reason to believe that they're being targeted and are generally complacent with saying, well, I, I don't have anything to hide. Nobody's investigating me. And, uh, my current using the same password everywhere is fine. And, uh, what would you say to those people to suggest, uh, try, do you know that your thoughts and your private ideas that you have now, do you know that those are legal 10 years from now? A mine aren't for sure. Oh, oh I, <laughs> Well, yeah, I was also just, I was kind of thinking when you were talking about the TSA and forcing somebody to unlock their phone. And I just imagine Sir Bemmer's going, you really don't want to do that. You really don't want to. Okay, here's my password. And then they're all just naked pictures of him. And they're like, you're right. We didn't want to do that. Well, the way I see it, anybody who encounters something like that, they deserve the years of therapy <laughs> bills they're going to get. It's like, I told you, you didn't want to see it. You didn't believe me. But, you know, I think you make an absolutely uh, valid and essential point, uh, Brendan, in, in this world especially and i know we sound like old guys you know ryan and i have talked about this in the past like we never thought we'd be the guys going you know it was way different when i was a kid and we remember reading things like 1984 when i was we have people 
we have people losing their jobs because of public thoughts they had 15 years ago. Yes. You, know, you said something stupid in public. Now you're fired. So yes. yeah. or, or, you, or you stuff, looked at the wrong woman. All that private stuff that you're storing in Google Docs that is private to you, but Google is storing it forever. And Google doesn't really care about it. If it doesn't have an advertising angle, they don't give a shit. But they're holding on to it. They're never going to delete it. Is What happens when 10 years from now, the political climate has gone completely bonkers? Like we're past clown world. We're into I don't know what world. And the FBI comes knocking at Google and says, we need to read this guy. We need to read this people and these people and everyone who's a match for this. We want to see their private thoughts. And, uh, oh, we're really not happy with what we found. Well, which comes down to the same questions we had with anonymity and something like Bitcoin. I think there's a lot of people out there who, you know, I'm on Twitter. I use my real name, so I'm not hard to find. But there's a lot of people that are on social media like Twitter that think they can make any joke that they want and say anything they want, which they can right now. But eventually that screen name is going to be attached to a real person and things that, like you said, that you said 10 years ago now are going to be a problem and you're going to have to be rounded up for. And that's why ever since like uh, a few years after college, I think I decided I am not going to be anonymous online. Like there's a few certain places that I'm not going to discuss that where I'm not anonymous, but uh, where I am anonymous. But for the most part, anything I do online, uh, it's really easy to figure out exactly who I am. The reason I have that policy is because it keeps me in check. It keeps me from being a dick and it keeps me thinking about every single interaction that I have. I assume that this is going to be like recorded and stored forever and scrutinized in the future. So I behave accordingly. And if I thought that I was anonymous, if I pretended that I was anonymous, I might not be so cagey with my, with things that I share. Say I'm using my own name, but it's not, doesn't seem to be working to prevent me from being a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, but it it sounds like. It sounds like what you've done is you've made you've you've made the decision to take a little bit of control uh, over your online presence, because whether you choose to be anonymous or not, if unless you put in an inordinate amount of effort at staying anonymous, your real identity is going to get out there. And so making the decision and taking control of that, you know, whether or not it's a, a, a meaningful choice you you've actually made the choice to be yourself and yeah. i i'm the same person online that i am when you meet me for lunch which is an important thing because that's how i've always used facebook and i know that ryan's not on that you're not on twitter but i've always everything i've done on facebook has always been completely public i'm treating this as i know anything I put everything up there. everybody does anywhere on facebook is always completely public I agree, but there are people who don't understand that. And that's where they get into trouble thinking, Hey, I'm only sharing this photo with my friends. Bullshit. If you're putting it on Facebook, you may as well mark everything as public because that's basically what you got in the, in the long run anyway. And, and this is why my private photos that I haven't chosen to share are not on Google drive. And you shouldn't put them on your phone that are automatically uploaded. You have to be vigilant. You always wonder how these celebrities that get their photos allegedly hacked. I think some do it for the publicity, but you have to realize, yeah, that every, (laughs) you know, a lot of this stuff is, you know, I'm using a service as, you know, Amazon has the service to where if you set your phone up to do it, every photo you take automatically gets backed up to the cloud. Then I can delete it on my phone and, you know, you don't have to store it locally. Which is is an incredibly valuable service. Uh, 
in terms of security, because uh, somebody may take your phone away and that somebody might be a thug and that somebody might be a cop. And if you're taking photos when they do that, then you have proof that they did it. Right. Because it's already gone to the cloud. Whenever I see those convenient cloud things, I get pissed off a lot. Something that really triggers me is these uh, these health uh, telemetry bracelets, right. the, the surveillance bracelets. Yeah, you know, you yeah. wear this bracelet and it records your heartbeat and, and your um, your uh, skin galvanic response and all that good shit. And that's great data to have if you want to use that, store it personally and analyze it. And, you know, if you're on a, uh, a healthy kick or whatever, that's awesome. I want to play with that. I don't but need all I that data find on the market. database. I can't find a bracelet that records to a bloody SD card that I just cop- take out and plug into my computer. Why can't I have that? Why does it have to be attached to a service I have no control over? Because I'm never going to buy that. Because your your needs are not, you're not in tune with Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, everything has to be the cloud. And here- and it- I would love to have a- I have a home server and I've got, I've got another server in the cloud that's got encrypted storage that I have to unlock the encrypted storage every time I reboot it. I would love to be able to, every time I take a photo, as soon as there's a network connection, it's automatically copied over to one of those servers. I, I would be thrilled. I, I could do it if I wanted to, but I haven't because it's not convenient. I would be thrilled to use lots of cloud services if I had control of the storage. But the simple fact is that when when something disappears into a data center in Silicon Valley, I don't have control over it and I can't trust that. And if there's one thing we do here at Grumpy Old Ben's, it's we yell at the cloud. Right. And, Which is, you again, can, you know, that's you why tell- any any photo that I take, it's the same way as putting something up on Facebook. If I take a photo with my phone, I know it's going up to Amazon. So that also forces you to have that mentality of don't take a picture of something that you don't want public. And yeah, it, public it behavior works. versus private behavior. Right. And you can you can tell a dude named Ben from not a dude named Ben by how do they treat cloud storage? Well, that like, is do you just by default. Everything goes in cloud storage or by default. No, I'm going to have to have a really good reason to use it. Well, it all depends on who's, like you said, who's running the cloud storage. And if you're running your own server and you got everything from your phone is backing up in a, you know, an encrypted connection between that and the, your own cloud, that's great. Yeah, I don't see using, that as cloud storage. That's private storage. I'm, that, I'm well, seeing but it's an, kind of your own cloud, right? Yeah. I'm seeing an interesting division, uh, especially in the last couple of years between dudes named Ben and tech enthusiasts. Tech enthusiasts are the ones who see some who watch twit who, yeah, who watch. Yes. Uh, who, who see something shiny that came out of Silicon Valley and they want it and they jump on and they enjoy it and they use it and they are tech celebrities. And then the people who actually understand what's going on are like, no, there's no way I'm going to use that. Look, it, there's obvious security holes built into the design that are glaringly obvious in your marketing campaign. I don't even have to look at the technical specs to know that this is going to harm me. And yeah. so the people who know are are no longer. You know, Ten years ago, they were the same group. If you were excited about technology, then you jumped on the new things and you got to know it. But I think today, the people who really are start uh, understand the dangers of some of this technology are no longer the ones who are jumping on board every single new product. Well, it's because the technology is overreaching and the technology, when this whole computer thing started, even going back into the early days when I had my trash 80 color computer, you had full control over what was going in and out of that computer. And nobody could attack you from remote. 
Yes, which is the most interesting change that has happened now, which the Internet of Things, which is another topic we'll talk about in depth at some point, you know, but the fact that there are now light bulbs that can be hacked, that uh, that your whole network is at uh, at risk. I mean, well, the best story I still think was the last Las Vegas casino that had their whale list, you know, the list of all the big gamblers um, leaked because they casinos are smart. They know they have their public network and their private network. The unfortunately their network controlled fish tank was on their <laughs> private network and that's how they got hacked. Somebody hacked them through a fish tank. That is, I awesome. have not heard that story and it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing that that kind of stuff, well, because they figured, well, we want to control this. So it shouldn't be on the public network. It's on the, but whatever this was, the device that was in the fish tank that obviously must've let them control maybe the feeding and the lights or whatever in the tank was Wi-Fi to their, to their private network, or maybe there was a wired connection, but most likely it was a Wi-Fi thing. And that's, uh, that was the entry point that the hackers used. And it's, Again, you don't think of these things when, you know, you buy a new refrigerator that has an internet connection. I mean, what doesn't have an internet connection? Everything now? in my house. Yeah. And setting up Wi-Fi is a pain in the ass. Entering the password, you, you have to have like the longest possible password or it's no good. And so Microsoft and or Apple have come up with a solution where like one device will give the Wi-Fi password to another device. And I That's see that. And I'm just insidious. like, oh, God, please. No. Why are you doing that? I, I, I'm. Yeah, my smart TVs are are a particular curiosity to me. My my TV, uh, the one that I purchased years ago, which means it's completely out of date, but it has a wife uh, an Ethernet plug in the back, and it has never been plugged in. It will never be plugged in because no, <laughs> uh, my TV does not need to talk to the cloud. It needs to display images, and that's it. Uh, but. I know that newer ones, you don't even have the option per se of, of not plugging in an ethernet cable anymore, because if you, they, they just have Wi-Fi in them and you, you still, I think mostly have the option of not giving your TV, the Wi-Fi password, if you want to keep it offline, but I'm waiting for the television, the smart TV firmware that will go and just have in the firmware, a list of Wi-Fi exploits so that it can try to <laughs> hack into your Wi-Fi so that it can get a connection no matter what. That's great well, customer service. Yeah. So or, it's, yeah, or they'll it's, use the Comcast open Wi-Fi, which is available just about everywhere. No, now. The, the marketing behind that is, is not we're going to hack your Wi-Fi. The marketing behind that is zero configuration needed. Yeah. Right. And let me tell you how this should be done. If you want to have a, one device, give the Wi-Fi password to another device. Really simple. If you really want to do it, the resaving device has to have a camera. You display a QR code. Then the user has to bring the QR code up to the camera and say, here you go. Then like you know that the sharing is happening and all that. But they've got all these back channel other ways of doing it, sending sound pings to each other or something. Um, and of course, there's all the Bluetooth things. Or, or here's um, another and, and thought. And the user doesn't the user doesn't even know that insecure crazy shit's happening. Here's another thought. My light bulbs don't need to be on the cloud. They need to respond to the switch on the wall. <laughs> You're just and your old. air conditioner and, and, and your doorbell and that, well, that, that could be a whole other show. Well you I said have, the internet. I have a completely you. manual fish tank. Yeah, and that way you haven't been hacked. I mean the Wi Fi standard, is it just is it just the uh the way that it was written? Doesn't it have the ability why 
doesn't the Wi-Fi treat logins like every other thing where why can't I say, well, I want my main computer when I go set up my router. Why can't I set up an account for, you know, computer with a password of this? Why can't I set one up for, you know, Amazon device with a password of this? Why is it just one password? Uh, you can do that. Um, why, why is it just one password? The, the, because they wanted to make it nice and easy for the idiots at home. Convenience. But, um, yeah. you, can, uh, you can install, if you have a Wi-Fi uh, router that is compatible with something like DDWRT, you can install DDWRT and it has a module for like enterprise login where like every device has its own separate private network and its own password. And um, I don't know the specifics of it, but you can do it much better. Um, the, the best thing to do is run a VPN on top of an open Wi-Fi network. And if you're not on the VPN, you have nothing. Um, but uh, why did they do it the way they did it for regular home Wi-Fi networks Easy. to make it easy for the user? That is the bottom line on pretty much. You, you put the password in the wall and anytime a new device comes in, you just write, you, you punch in that password. And most people are going to have a password that's so short, you could guess it from remote. And you don't even yeah, have just to be on the other side the of the password wall. anymore. All these devices are now going to every time a new device shows up, then your other devices are going to say, hey, come online. Here's the password. Yeah, and that's, that is happening now. I don't know the specifics of it, but I know it's happening. Um, definitely more content for many more grumpy old Ben shows because this stuff I don't think is, is getting any better. So, I mean, I think what we've learned today is cryptography is a real pain in the ass, but there are ways to do it using stuff like Veracrypt that if somebody wants to take, you know, 20 minutes learning the program and reading a few docs, it's pretty easy to set up encryption on drives, uh, and just, or even where you can take an encrypted file and mount that to your device to keep your data safe because if you're not doing that at all you're just asking for a problem especially again wi-fi this is your open door into your network if somebody can guess your wi-fi network anybody within a few hundred feet of your house they could be sitting out in front you know your neighbor it's pretty easy to get into your computer and if your stuff isn't encrypted then you know you, it, you the chances of your data finding them itself into the wrong hands goes way, way up. Any parting thoughts on what people should do to, you know, be able to use this easier or suggestions on this stuff, Brendan? Um, something that comes to mind right now that I want to mention is if you are looking for software to provide a function, you should go to, and I don't work for them, but I just like to plug them everywhere I go, alternative2.net, alternative2.net. Um, go, go there, look up any software function and they will give you a bunch of software that, uh, will provide that function and they will provide opinionated capsule reviews of it. So if that software comes with ride along browser plugins and bullshit like that, alternative two is going to complain about that right there on the profile page. Um, and, uh, you, you that's a good way to find software that you didn't know existed. Gotta love user reviews. Yeah. They, they, so, uh, if, if you, if you want to do something you haven't done before software wise, go, go to alternative two.net. Try that out. Well, I've particularly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for coming on, Brandon. Is, Thank is you. Brandon or Brandon? Brandon. B-R-E-N-D-A-N. Okay. And uh, you can find me on the internet at uh, smallcomputer.us. Uh, that's the URL I like to give out that I can say over the phone that, that, uh, don't get it wrong. Smallcomputer.us. And unlike things like grumpy old Ben's, people can probably spell it just from hearing it. 
<laughs> I'm telling you, I'm still mad that I can't get my stupid Google device to understand grumpy old Ben's. It keeps wanting to give me a show called grumpy old geeks. And I'm like, no geek sounds <laughs> nothing like Ben's. Well, it does. But, if you're in the know. So <laughs> I guess it does. <laughs> is, is grumpy old geeks a show that we don't know about? I, I think it is. I it think it's grumpy. a cheap knockoff of grumpy old Ben's. Yeah, we didn't we didn't steal their name. We just do a show. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Absolutely. Flattery, though. That is true. So does that that sums everything up? I think so. So uh, from America's left coast, where virtue signaling is a civic duty. I'm Ryan Bemrose <laughs> from the beautiful city of Chirac. I am Darren O'Neill. And uh, of course, Brendan Kidwell from New York, New York City. City. Yeah, you know, the liberal capital of the world. Or is that L.A.? Well, at least they don't crap on the streets in New York as much until next yeah, we time. Don't ha- we don't have the street crapping yet. <laughs> well, we, well, that's something to look forward got to. pigeons for that. <laughs> that is true. Until next time. Later. Uh, uh, uh.